Okay, welcome back everyone. As we gather, you can uh, open your Bibles and turn to Daniel chapter 5. So I don't know about you, but I've been having a wonderful time in this book of Daniel. And I think just if, even if you've read it before, maybe you've known some of these stories, it's, it's helpful to review them. You know, so many of these stories that we've, we've already encountered that we're encountering today and then again next week, uh, these are popular stories in Sunday school. And actually, I was thinking about it as well. Uh, today we're dealing with what's called the handwriting on the wall. And this is one of those things, we've probably all heard people say this, right? Uh, just in conversation, they seem to know about these things. They know about Daniel and the lion's den. They know about the proverbial handwriting on the wall. And uh, today, uh, if you didn't know before, you'll know now what that handwriting on the wall was all about and where it came from. You know, so when people say it, you'll be like, oh, I understand what you're saying, but here's the real story, right? And it's a great opportunity to help them understand uh, God and how wonderful he is. So Daniel chapter 5, the struggle I always have is, do I read a couple of verses or do we read the whole chapter? And uh, it's such an interesting story. I want to uh, read it to you. You can read along with me. Daniel chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. And so let's read through this together before we get into studying it. Belshazzar the king made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in the presence of the thousand. While he tasted the wine, Belshazzar gave the command to bring the gold and silver vessels, which his father Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple, which had been in Jerusalem, uh, that the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought the gold vessels that had been taken from the temple of the house of God which had been in Jerusalem. And the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze and iron, wood and stone. In the same hour, the fingers of a man's hand appeared and wrote opposite the lampstand on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. And the king saw, that part of the hand, uh, saw the part of the hand that wrote, Then the king's countenance changed, and his thoughts troubled him, so that the joints of his hips were loosened, and his knees knocked against each other. The king cried aloud to bring in the astrologers, the Chaldeans, and the soothsayers, and the king spoke, saying to the wise men of Babylon, Whoever reads this writing and tells me the interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck, and he shall be the third ruler in the kingdom." Now all the king's wise men came, but they could not read the writing nor make known to the king its interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly troubled, his countenance was changed, and his lords were astonished. The queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came to the banquet hall, and the queen spoke, saying, O king, live forever. Do not let your thoughts trouble you, nor let your countenance change." There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy God. 
And in the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, astrologers, Chaldeans, and soothsayers. Inasmuch as an excellent spirit, knowledge, understanding, interpreting dreams, solving riddles, and explaining enigmas were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar, now let Daniel be called, and he will give the interpretation." Then Daniel was brought in before the king, and the king spoke and said to Daniel, Are you that, Daniel, who is one of the captives of Judah, whom my father the king brought from Judah? I have heard of you, that the Spirit of God is in you, and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men, the astrologers, have been brought in before me, that they should read this writing and make known to me its interpretation, but they could not give the interpretation of the thing. And I have heard of you, that you can give interpretations and explain enigmas. Now, if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. Yet I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, a kingdom and majesty and glory, glory and honor. And because of the majesty that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whomever he wished, he executed. Whomever he wished, he kept alive. Whomever he wished, uh, he set up. And whomever he wished, he put down. But when his heart was lifted up, and his spirit was hardened in pride, he was deposed from his kingly throne, and they took his glory from him. Then he was driven from the sons of men, his heart was made like the beasts, his dwelling was with the wild donkeys, they fed him with grass like oxen, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, till he knew that the Most High God rules in the kingdom of men, and appoints over it whomever he chooses. But you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, although you knew all of this. And you have lifted yourself up against the Lord of heaven. They have brought the vessels of his house before you. And you and your lords, your wives, and your concubines have drunk wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold, bronze and iron, wood and stone, which do not see or hear or know. And the God who holds your breath in his hand and owns all your ways, you have not glorified. Then the fingers of the hand were sent from him, and this writing was written. And this is the inscription that was written, many, many tekel upharsin. This is the interpretation of each. Many, God has numbered your kingdom and finished it. Tekel You have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, or Eupharsin, your kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Then Belshazzar gave the command, and they clothed Daniel with purple and put a chain of gold around his neck and made a proclamation concerning him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, king of the Chaldeans, was slain. 
And Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. Lord, thank you for the reading of your word. May you honor it and may it run swiftly into our hearts, into the deepest recesses. And may you speak to us today, Lord, as we honor you by giving you our attention and listening to what you may have to say to us in Jesus' name. Amen. So you may remember as we were last week in chapter 4, we looked at the story of King Nebuchadnezzar where the se- second time uh, the Lord had given him a dream. In chapter 2, earlier on in the ministry of Daniel during his captivity, uh, a dream was given to the king and Daniel was brought in to interpret that dream. And the king elevated Daniel and his friends. Uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were there. Uh, Babylonian names. And then many years later in chapter 4, we saw that once again the king had a dream. It troubled him. And Daniel came in to interpret that dream. And in so doing, he recounted to the king. He said, you know, basically, king, you can go back and read this. You know these things. You know that God is the Lord. We've had this discussion, you know, 20 years earlier when the Lord brought this other dream to you. And once again, the Lord is warning you. And we know, as we read last week, that God gave him basically a one-year reprieve. He gave him an opportunity to repent and to acknowledge God as the Lord. But he did not do that. He chose not to do that. And on a certain day, as we were reading the story last week, he kind of walked out and was looking at his kingdom, and he kind of puffed up with pride in a moment of vanity. He just said, "Look look what my hand has done. And in that moment, God brought upon him judgment in the form of complete madness. He became like a beast of the field. He lived out in the forest and the wilderness for seven years. The dew from heaven fell on him. He ate grass. His nails grew long. His hair grew long. And it was a crazy scenario. And as we talked about it, we talked about the fact that God wants all people to know who he is. He wants all people to acknowledge him. And we could go off and do a side study, and I'll quote a couple of verses this morning, but in in the book of uh, Romans in chapter 1, beginning in verse 18, if you've read your Bible, you know that that's the, the part where it talks about how God gave people over to the lusts of their flesh, and he allowed their hearts to be hardened. But in that passage, it says that every person will be without excuse before God because he says, everybody knows who I am. And we tend to think uh, that, that there's people who don't know who God is. Well, there's people who haven't heard the gospel, certainly, but they're, uh, everyone, according to the Lord, because he's their creator, they know that there's a God in heaven. They know that there is a higher power. They know that there is a creator. So we'll get into some of that this morning. But Nebuchadnezzar had to go through this incredibly difficult trial. Now, we tend to think, you know, we think about ourselves and our trials. Uh, We go through something for a week and we think it's the end of the world. But Nebuchadnezzar had to go through a trial that endured seven years. But when he came out of that seven years, and if you just look back at chapter 4, verse 37, he finally came to his senses, he came to his right mind. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, all of whose works are truth and his ways are justice. 
And those who walk in pride, he is able to put down. He finally understood what God was saying to him all of that time. Your pride will bring you down. And we talked about it that extensively last week. Well, this week, we're now uh, to around 21 years further into the future. King Nebuchadnezzar, I'll read a little paragraph here to sort of explain what's happened with the puts and the takes of the king. Uh, the kings. Uh, King Nebuchadnezzar has sort of moved off of the scene. The last we hear of him really was last week in chapter four. And then, of course, he gets an honorable mention here today before uh, Belshazzar, the king. But there were other uh, kings who came and went who were all kind of related to Nebuchadnezzar. So let me read this little paragraph that explains it to you so you understand what's happening. The great King Nebuchadnezzar died in 562 BC and was succeeded by his son, evil Merodach, who reigned only two years. And this is chronicled, and I can give you the references. 2 Kings 25, Jeremiah 52, his name is mentioned. His brother-in-law, brother-in-law, Neraglasser, mentioned as Nephal Sherezer in Jeremiah 39, murdered him in 560, usurped the throne, and ruled for four years. Then a weak puppet ruler named Labshi Marduk held the throne for only two months. And finally, Nabonidus became king and reigned from 556 to 539. Historians believe Nabonidus was married to a daughter of Nebuchadnezzar and was the father of Belshazzar. Nabonidus ruled the Babylonian empire, but Belshazzar, his son, was co-regent and ruled the city of Babylon. So when they use the term father, of course, in Ancient times, they would re- use the term father not only to re- refer to your father, but to refer to those who came before you. Uh, and of course, today, uh, the Hebrews refer to the fathers going back to the patriarchs. So that use of the term father is not referring to his literal birth father, but his father who had come before him. One of the interesting things uh, about the city of Babylon, and we've been talking about it, Uh, is that the city of Babylon boasted that it was impregnable and that there was enough food stored away to feed the population for at least 20 years. So this was a city that was a great accomplishment when, when it was built, but it was also a city that boasted great pride. And so once again, God is addressing the issue of pride with the city of Babylon, but this time with a different king. And so as we pick it up here in verse 1 and verse 2 of chapter 5, we find that Belshazzar the king, uh, and he's now like three or four times removed from King Nebuchadnezzar, he made this great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in the presence of the thousand. And it would seem as often happens when people get into a serious party and they get drunk and they begin to lose control of their senses, that he gave the command in verse 2, to bring the gold and silver vessels which his father Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple uh, which had been in Jerusalem, that the kings and his lords and his wives and his concubines might drink from them. Now we can go back and read about this. There's all sorts of scriptures that point back to this. In 2 Chronicles 36, it talks about that uh, in verse 10, at the turn of the year, King Nebuchadnezzar summoned him, took him to Babylon with the costly articles from the house of the Lord. And so what happened is Nebuchadnezzar went in and raided the temple and he took all of these things that Moses, you know, God had given these instructions to Moses to build these things in service to the Lord. And so now all of these holy relics, if you will, 
have been taken to Babylon. They've sat in storage for all these years. And now, on this particular day, Belshazzar goes, you know what, those, those things are sitting back there collecting dust. He knew they came from Jerusalem. And he said, why don't we get that stuff out and let's just party with that stuff. And so while they were drinking out of the cups that the priests were supposed to drink from and, and to use as a, a method of pouring out drink offerings and libations unto the Lord and the service of the Lord, they now filled them up and were drinking out of them and, and giving honor and glory to all of these false gods. And so they were essentially thumbing their noses in the face of God as they did these things. And it says, verse 3, so they did this. They, they brought them out and they drank from them. And I love what one commentator said. People can defy the will of God and blaspheme his name only for so long. And then the hand of the Lord begins to move. And I think it's a frightful thing when, you know, we're, I'm sure we all know people we're praying for, people we want to come know the Lord, uh, you know, siblings, parents, brothers and sisters, cousins, uncles, just friends. And we should not give up. We should continue to pray for them. But the frightful thing to me is when you see one of those people meet God, having not known him. And you know what their end is, and it breaks your heart. And here we have King Belshazzar pushing the limits, thumbing his nose in the face of God and doing it publicly. So it says in verse 4, they drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze and iron, wood and stone. And he knew of these things. He's sort of playing dumb a little bit, but his mother, and she was referred to as the queen mother. As we understand it, she was not his wife. She was probably related more to Nebuchadnezzar, but she was still existing there in the palace. So she was called in, of course. But right as this hand came from God to begin writing this message on the wall, let me remind you of something. These unpopular messages of the Old Testament. In the book of Hosea chapter 8, we read this. They sow the wind and reap the whirlwind. And this is what people do, who thumb their nose at God and who resist the work of the Holy Spirit and who pretend like there is no God. You know, it's interesting that the holiness of God is mocked today. When we talk about holiness, when we talk about righteousness, when we talk about doing the right thing, the things that we often hear back from people is, well, who does that? Who does the right thing just for the sake of doing the right thing? Nobody does that. And yet we are called to do that. As his people, if we believe in Christ, if we've been saved, if we've been born again, and the Holy Spirit of the Lord has come within us, this ought to evoke within us a sense of holiness because our holiness comes from the Lord. We are made holy because of him, because of his presence in our lives. You remember the story. During the days of King David, the Israelites were returning the ark to Jerusalem. It had been away in the camp of the Amalekites, I believe. And they, as they were returning the ark, they ignored the rule that God had set out for treating the ark as holy by carrying it 
with two poles, and rather they had set it on a cart drawn by oxen. And as they were walking, the oxen stumbled and the ark began to fall off. And then Uzzah, who was one of the men following the ark, reached out with his hand to keep the ark from falling. And in that moment, God struck him dead instantly on the spot. And people were appalled at that. And they were like, well, man, he was just helping God. He was just trying to prevent the ark of God from falling off and hitting the dirt and everything getting broken and whatever. And, and people were very upset. Even King David was upset. And we read in that passage of Scripture in 2 Samuel 6, uh, da- David was angry because the Lord's wrath had broken out against Uzzah. But what we need to realize that is that God is holy. And God did not ask for man's help. And, and we, it, man had already violated the way that God wanted his ark to be treated. And the point of all of this is the ark was representative of God's presence. And in the same manner, here we are in this pagan setting, if you will, here in Babylon with with another king uh, who's not a believer in God, but he nonetheless knows who God is. And so he's, again, rebelling against God. So in verse 5, in the same hour, it says here, the fingers of a man's hand appeared and wrote opposite the lampstand on the plaster of the wall. So it would seem that as this hand appears from the presence of God to begin writing out this message that is by the lampstand. And so God is sort of shining a spotlight on this wall so that they can see what is happening. And so this hand begins to write out this message. And as this hand appeared and this sort of miracle was happening where uh, this hand is writing on the wall, his face goes pale in verse 6, and his thoughts troubled him. The joints of his hips were loosened, his knees knocked against each other. And I don't know if you can relate to this, but perhaps all of us have seen something like America's Funniest Home Videos or something like that, you know, where someone's behind a door and they jump out and they scare them, right? And then they go, ah, and they just, everything just kind of, they lose control. But in this situation, this is not someone pulling a prank. He sees this amazing thing, the very hand of God appearing and writing out this message to him. Now, when God resorts to communicating with you by doing what we refer to as the handwriting on the wall, this is not a good thing, right? Sometimes we say when we're talking about, you know, trying to understand what is God's plan for my life or what is God's will in a certain situation. I just wish I had the handwriting on the wall. No, you don't. So just put that out of your mind. I know you want it in a good way, but this was not a good example, To sort of reinforce this issue of the holiness of God, there's so many stories we could tell, but you also may remember that in the Old Testament, there was this, this God called Dagon. And as going back to that story of when they were bringing the ark, trying to get it back to Jerusalem, they had stopped in this certain place and they put it in, in, a, in, a, in a house or in a hut and this little gold idol, uh, Dagon, was there. And they came in the next day, and this idol had fallen on its face before the ark. It literally, in worship of God, and they were like, well, this is weird. What's that? And they set it back up, and they go out, and they come back in the next day. Same thing happens. And the whole point here was that God himself was under, you know, wanted the Philistines, I said the Amalekites, excuse me, the Philistines, to understand that God himself was not knocking their God, little g, off the pedestal to get their attention and to help them understand that God would not bow 
to anyone that he is God. And for extra credit, if you want to go read Psalm 115, in there, the psalmist lists out and he says, eyes they have, but they do not see, ears they have, but they do not hear, mouths they have, but they do not speak. And the question arises, why would you worship a God like that? A God who can be burned, a God who can be lost, a God who can't speak. And so God in his holiness is now getting across to the king and his, his you know, court there what's happening, that God is present. And so his countenance changed, his, his hips were loosed, his knees knocked, and the king cried aloud to bring in the astrologers. So these are the same people that King Nebuchadnezzar had called in over and over for, you know, for help. But they proved continually that they could not help. They could bring nothing except strange divination and magic, but nothing that would help them understand. And I think, to me, this helps us sort of just think about briefly, where are the places we turn for counsel and for answers? I hope it's to God's word. I hope it's to a fellow believer, brother, sister in Christ, or a pastor, or, or an elder, or deacon, or someone who can pray with us and come alongside and bring the counsel of God's word into our lives. But don't turn to secular counselors. Don't turn to, you know, Dr. Phil. I mean, they might have some basic practical wisdom, but you have to understand that from the Bible's point of view, all of our problems have a spiritual root. And so for those answers, we need to go to the Lord. So in verse 8, the king's wise men came. They couldn't do anything. Of course, they were impotent. King Belshazzar was greatly troubled in verse 9. His countenance was changed. His lords were astonished. And the queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came to the banquet hall. She heard about this and she spoke and said, O king, live forever. Now she was older, she had more prominence and all of that, but he was the king, so she had to act in the certain protocol as she approached him. She said, do not let your thoughts trouble, trouble you, nor let your countenance change. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy God. Now let's stop there for a moment. Remember last week, over and over and over, this phrase was used of Daniel. That Daniel, we know that in you, the spirit of the holy one, the spirit of the holy God exists. And here we are now again, 21 years later, removed from that story in chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar is gone. Daniel's sort of pretty much by himself. In fact, just to give ourselves some perspective, Daniel's now 82 years old. Remember in chapter 1, when he was taken captive, he was probably around 15 years, of old, year, years old. So we're way down the road at this point. Daniel's an old man. He's 82 years old, probably walking through with his cane or his walker. And he's being called in. Uh, by the queen and ultimately the king. And she's saying to him, listen to how the queen thinks of Daniel. In whom is the spirit of the holy God? Oh, that God would do that for you and me. And oh, that others would look at us and say, I don't know who to go to, but, but this person, this man, this woman, uh, who sits in the cube next to me at work or whatever it might be, they, there's something about them. The spirit of the holy God is in them. Let me go ask them. And I hope that you would take, at least from this, as you kind of think about the, the things that you want to walk away with here today, that this might be you. 
that you would be so filled with the Spirit of God that others would see that in you and in me, not, not for my exaltation or yours, but so that we might direct others to the living God. That we might be, as you've probably seen the bumper stickers, I'm just one beggar telling other beggars where to find bread. And she goes on and says, and in the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father, the king. So she's emphasizing here, hey, pay attention. Don't, don't ignore history just because you're the new young buck on the block. And this is, this is the thing that always happens, isn't it? From generation to generation. The younger generation looks at the older and says, and I'm dating myself with my language. I'm sorry, I was born in the 60s. Uh, you're square, you're not cool, you don't have anything good to say, why would I go to you? You're just going to do something old-fashioned anyway. You don't understand how things work today in the new world. And why would I come to you? And she's pointing him back saying, listen, Nebuchadnezzar, your father, the one who went before you, the king, he understood this man, he put this man in charge of the, the entire court of the astrologers and the magicians and the soothsayers and all of that. In verse 12, inasmuch as an excellent spirit, listen to the description that she continues to give of Daniel by character, an excellent spirit, knowledge, understanding, interpreting dreams, solving riddles, explaining enigmas, they were found in this Daniel. And also notice that she's not referring to him by his Babylonian name, Belteshazzar. She's referring to him by his Hebrew name, Daniel. She's honoring him and his God by calling him Daniel. In, in their court and in the Babylonian system, they were calling these people who were made captives by the Babylonian names they were given because that was a part of the brainwashing to bring them over. But the queen is honoring him, calling him by his Hebrew name. Now let Daniel be called and he will give the interpretation. So Daniel comes. He was brought before the king. The king spoke and said, are you that Daniel who is one of the captives of Judah, whom my father, the king, brought from Judah. I've heard of you. And notice what he says. And he's just kind of parroting what he heard. I've heard of you. Not that I know you, but I've heard of you. That the spirit of God is in you. And that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. And I believe he's almost saying this with a bit of sarcasm. Now the wise men, the astrologers, have been brought in before me that they should read this writing. And basically they couldn't do anything. I've heard of you, that you can give me some answers here. You can give the interpretations and explain enigmas. Now, if you can read the writing and make it known to me, uh, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold. In other words, I'm going to elevate you. I'm going to make you third in the kingdom because he's second, so he can't offer second. He has to offer third. And Daniel answers and he says, and of course, as Daniel says this, you get the sense he's 82 years old. He's got nothing to lose at this point. He's served God. And this is something that you don't say to the king. In fact, before, here's the thing to see before Daniel gives the answer. He basically gives the, the king a sermon. Usually when you're called in before the king, it's like you don't speak unless you're spoken to and you only answer the question that's given to you and then you turn around and get out. But Daniel says, let your gifts be for yourself. I don't want your stuff. And give your rewards to another. Yet I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. And then he begins his little sermon here. O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, a kingdom and majesty, glory and honor. So again, let's stop here for a moment. 
As we were going through last week, we got the sense, especially as Daniel cared for King Nebuchadnezzar through those seven years, that Daniel had developed a relationship with this king and he saw that God was reaching out to this king and he, he was giving mercy and grace to him over and over and over. And ultimately, in the end, Nebuchadnezzar believed he humbled himself. But I think Daniel sees in this young man a rebellious spirit. And so he's, he's coming at him a little bit aggressively. And he's saying, you know, your king, uh, your, your father, the king, and because of the majesty that he gave him, that is God, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. So he's saying his authority, his power came from where? Not his greatness, but it came from God. And that was, of course, the lesson that God had to keep teaching Nebuchadnezzar over and over and over. Uh, whomever he wished, he executed. Whomever he wished, he kept alive. Whomever he wished, he set up. And whomever he wished, he put down. But when his heart was lifted up, and this is what happened in chapter 4, his spirit was hardened in pride. He was deposed from his kingly throne. And who did that? It was God. And they took his glory from him. And then he was driven from the sons of men. His heart was made like the beast. And then he recounts in a couple of sentences what happened you know, more than 20 years earlier when uh, King Nebuchadnezzar was, of course, driven mad and driven out into the wilderness. And it says, they fed him with grass like oxen and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till or until he knew that the most high God rules in the kingdom of men and appoints over it whomever he chooses. So he's trying to make this young man understand you know, this kingdom that you've inherited, this palace that you're sitting in, these implements that you're drinking from, these all came from the hand of King Nebuchadnezzar, whom God raised up, whom God gave power to. But here's the thing in what Daniel says as we go forward now. God turns this banquet hall into a courtroom, and the king is about to be declared guilty. In Romans 1, this is what I was talking about earlier. I'd like to read just a couple of verses to you. Romans 1.18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in, righteousness, in unrighteousness. When people suppress the truth in unrighteousness, that means they know the truth. And that means they don't want to know the truth. I don't want to hear the truth. I know it's there. It's right here. I can hear it ringing in my ears. I can see it in my peripheral vision, but I don't want any part of it. And so that suppressing the truth in unrighteousness is what gets the dander of God up. And it says in verse 19, Romans 1:19, listen, because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. In Romans 1.28, a little further in that passage, and it says, and even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, so they had knowledge of God, but they're putting it out of their mind. God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting. Romans 1 is a worthwhile read if you've not read it in a while, especially the last half, where it talks about these things. And so, 
rest assured that as you're praying for people, you're not praying for people who have no knowledge of God. They may say they have no knowledge of God, but God's word says they do have knowledge of God. So in verse 23, Daniel says, and you have lifted yourself up against the Lord of heaven. They have brought the vessels of his his house, God's house before you, you and your lords, your wives, your concubines, and you've drunk wine from them, and you have praised the gods of silver and gold, bronze and iron, wood and stone, which do not see or hear or know, and the God who holds your breath in his hand, you should underline that, the God who holds your breath in his hand, this is true of everybody, not just of this king, and owns all your ways, you have not glorified. And so this is the reason that God is now bringing this judgment against King uh, Belshazzar here. I want to take a moment. We've sung about the holiness of God this morning, and that was by design, and we've been talking about the holiness of God. But permit me for a moment to share with you some of the names of God from the Old Testament that help us understand his holiness and understand who he is. El Shaddai, the Lord God Almighty. And if you'd like these, I'll be happy to share them with you. El Elyon, the Most High God. Adonai, Lord and Master. Yahweh, Lord or Jehovah. Jehovah Nissi, the Lord my banner. Jehovah Ra, the Lord my shepherd. Jehovah Shammah, the Lord is there. Jehovah Sidkenu, the Lord our righteousness. Uh, this one I'm not sure I can pronounce. Jehovah Mekodeshikam, the Lord who sanctifies you. El Olam, the everlasting God. Elohim, God, the proper name of God. Kwana, jealous. Jehovah Jireh, the Lord will provide. Jehovah Shalom, the Lord is peace. And Jehovah Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts. These are the names of our God, and they all speak to an aspect of his character. And as Daniel is now about to explain to the king and his court, what came to my mind was this passage out of Psalm 50 which says in verse, Psalm 50, verse 16, but to the wicked, God says, what right have you to declare my statutes or take my covenant in your mouth, seeing that you hate instruction and you cast my words behind you? When you saw a thief, you consented with him and have been a partaker with adulterers. You give your mouth to evil and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. Listen, These things you have done and I kept silent. You thought that I was altogether like you. Sometimes people think that because God hasn't done anything that he's not real or he doesn't really care about what they do. And he says, you thought that I was altogether like you, but I will rebuke you, listen, and set them in order before your eyes. And this is what God's about to do for this king. So back to Daniel 5, verse 24. Then the fingers of the hand were sent from him, from God, and this writing was written. And this is the inscription that was written. Many, many tekel eupharsin. This is the interpretation of each word. Many means God has numbered your kingdom and finished it. 
Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. That's something you don't want to hear. Perez, your kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. When it says here that uh, the hand of God, that these fingers appeared and they wrote on this wall, I started thinking about this issue of the finger of God or the fingers of God. And there's actually a number of places where this is referred to, just to sort of give you a sense that this is not the first or the only time that this idea of the finger of God has appeared in Exodus chapter uh, 8 when Moses was trying to get the people out of Egypt and they were dealing with Pharaoh during the third plague, the plague of the gnats, and I'll read this to you. Now the magicians so worked with their enchantments to bring forth lice, they were trying to duplicate this miracle that God had done, but they could not. So there were lice on man and beast. And then the magicians said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart grew hard and he did not heed them just as the Lord had said. So the first occurrence of this expression was that the finger of God had worked this mighty work by bringing in a plague of gnats that the magicians of Egypt could not duplicate or could not stave off. In Exodus chapter 31, perhaps the most famous one, and when he had made an end of speaking with him on Mount Sinai, this is the Lord speaking with Moses, he gave Moses two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written with the finger of God. So the very tablets of stone, the Ten Commandments, were written by God's finger in stone. So God communicated his word his judgment with his finger. And in Luke chapter 11 and in Matthew chapter 12, Jesus speaks of this, but he applies it in a different way. And Jesus, of course, is God. He's the son of God. And they were, uh, the scribes and the Pharisees were at this point criticizing Jesus for the work he was doing of casting out demons and, and working these works and these miracles in the name of God. And he says here, and if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, who was the name of a ruler of the demons in their mind, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if I cast out demons with the finger of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. Isn't that interesting that Jesus said that? So now how here we have in this story with the king in Daniel chapter 5 that the hand of God, the finger of God has come and has written this on the wall. And as we just read what it means, uh, God has numbered your kingdom and finished it. Uh, so it's over, you're over. Uh, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. God's looked at you and said, well, you wanted to try it on your own. Uh, you have nothing to offer, you're judged. And your kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Now, uh, Daniel 5.28, let's go back to Daniel 2, where the dream was given about the statue. Remember this from a few weeks ago? And the statue, the head was the head of gold and the chest of iron, uh, iron and bronze, I guess, and then the belly, uh, I'm probably getting all uh, silver, silver and bronze and the belly of, of silver, and then uh, the, the legs of iron, and then the feet were iron and clay and admixture. 
And in that, during the interpretation that God had given through Daniel, he went through and he looked at all those kingdoms and and he said, the next kingdom coming after you is the kingdom of the Medes and the Persians. So right here in Daniel 5.28, he's fulfilling what he said would happen all the way back in Daniel chapter 2, many, many years, probably some 40, 45 years earlier, when that vision had been given. And so we know from secular history, on the night of October 12th, 539 BC, the biggest event in, t- event in town was this banquet, but it's also the night that God allowed the Medes and the Persians to come in and to raid this impenetrable city. God turned it over and he ended the kingdom of King Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon and he turns it over to the Medes and the Persians. The interesting thing as you go and you read about this, you're like, how did they penetrate this impenetrable city? And we know, we've talked before a little bit about, you know, how big the walls are and all of the uh, security measures that they had built into this city. Well, the river Euphrates went right through the center of the city. And so this would, of course, be the only place that someone could get in. And part of their security protocol at, at night is that they had these gates, think sort of like jail bars, and they would uh, lower them into the river to block access if anyone would try to come in through uh, where the, the river penetrates the walls. But as we understand it, those gates were not lowered into place that night, probably because of this party. And what the uh, invading army did is they went upstream. They basically built a makeshift beaver dam stopped the flow and diverted the water, walked right into the city while they were having this party and took over the city. Now, as you look at this, now that's the human explanation and that is what happened historically. But who but God could orchestrate this? Remember going all the way back to the time when we started the book of Daniel and we were looking at the fact that God said he was going to bring foreign uh, people, people who were, were Gentiles, who were going to come and they would bring judgment on God's people by God's hand because they wouldn't listen to God himself and repent. And now God is taking this same idea and he's applying it to a pagan people, a pagan culture, and he's saying, I've brought, you know, my people you've had in your midst, you've had people like Daniel ministering to you, preaching the word of God, modeling for you what I'm like, and you've turned your back and thumbed your nose at me. So now it's like, God's like, I'm going to work this. Now, we don't have time to go this morning into all, all these things, but I'm going to give you a few scriptures if you want to look into this. In the book of Isaiah, chapter 44 and 45, the end of 44 leading into 45, uh, God prophesied uh, over 200 years earlier in advance of this event that he was going to allow this to happen. It's fascinating to go read it in light of what we're talking about here. Also in Jeremiah chapter 51, verses 57 and 58, God prophesied that he was going to do this. He was going to uh, allow the city to be overrun. God was gonna basically open the gates for Babylon to be invaded by King Cyrus and by his commanders, by his army. So, verse 29, then Belshazzar gave the command. They clothed Daniel. They gave him all these things anyway. But verse 30, that very night, Belshazzar, king of the Chaldeans, was slain. 
And so it happened. His pride got the best of him. He didn't listen. He didn't regard the wisdom that was there beforehand. He simply ignored it. Now Job, when Job was going through his perils, God spoke these words to him, and I think they apply to this situation. Job chapter 20, Do you not know this of old, since man was placed on earth, that the triumphing of the wicked is short, and the joy of the hypocrite is but for a moment? Though his haughtiness mounts up to the heavens and his head reaches to the clouds, yet will he perish forever like his own refuse? Those who have seen him will say, where is he? He will fly away like a dream and not be found. Yes, he will be chased away like a vision of the night. Speaking to the fleeting moment, uh, the people, these kings, you know, maybe they reigned for years, but from God's point of view, it's only a moment. In Isaiah chapter 40, it says, he, that is God, brings the princess to nothing. He makes the judges of the earth useless. Scarcely shall they be planted, scarcely shall they be sown, scarcely shall their stock take root in the earth when he will also blow on them and they will wither and the whirlwind will take them away like stubble. So that very night, Belshazzar was taken away. He wasn't given a period of time to repent the way King Nebuchadnezzar was. And then in verse 31, we're told that Darius the Mede who was a a subservient king to King Cyrus, Darius the Mede received the kingdom being about 62 years of age. Darius the Mede, mentioned by Daniel here in many places, Daniel 5, Daniel 6, Daniel 9. uh, This uh, is believed to be a man who in history was named Darius uh, Gubaru, uh, an important officer in the army whom Cyrus made ruler of the province of Babylon. There's also another Darius mentioned, Darius I, who ruled from 522 to 486. So there's another Darius, and it's a different Darius than this one. It's interesting as we think about these things, that two weeks in a row, uh, from the point of view of teaching, God has given us a passage of scripture that deals with pride, that deals with man rising up against God. And yet, as uh, for those who don't know Christ, I think we can understand this. It makes more sense to us. But for those of us who know Christ, you know, we realize we still have pride present within us. Jesus said, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? You know, there's another parable Jesus told of a man who was just hitting it. You know, his investments were good, his crops were good. And he said, I need to build bigger barns. And in that parable, Jesus says... You know, this very night, your soul will be required of you. You're going to go off and do all these things, build these bigger barns, do all these things, but you don't know what's going to happen. And so the warning, I think, to us as believers, as followers of Jesus, is to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. 
You know, and it's easy for us, and God, God is gracious, but it's easy for us to, to get off track and to think we know better and to, to, to go about and to do things and make plans and make decisions without ever praying, without ever consulting the Lord, without ever reading his word, or maybe even asking a, a fellow brother or sister saying, I'm thinking about doing this, what do you think? Just to get some input. And so we want to be careful with how we make our plans and, and what we do. We want to make sure that God is the first thought when we make these decisions. Because if we do these things without God, then when the bad times come and when the catastrophes happen, God will say, well, you, this is what you wanted. And you're like, no, that's not what I wanted. Well, you did because you didn't consult me. You didn't look to me. You didn't ask me. Might seem a little out of place, but I want to close with a story. And I think it just helps solidify for us what it means to be a person who belongs to the Lord. The story is told of a father who had one son. He was the apple of his eye. The father was a collector of art. And when his son was old enough, he took him around the world to teach him how to collect the finest paintings at the best price. Over the years, this man's house became quite a museum of art from Picasso to Raphael. One day, his son responded to the call of his country to go to war. The father kissed the son and proudly, though reluctantly, sent him off to the conflict. He received word a few weeks later that his son had been killed in battle, saving the life of another man. Stricken with grief, the man would not leave the house. Some weeks later, a soldier appeared at his door with a large wrapped package under his arm. The soldier said, sir, you don't know me, but I'm the soldier for whom your son gave his life. He saved many lives that day, and he was carrying me to safety when a bullet struck him in the heart, and he died instantly. He often spoke of you and your love for art. He did not know how to say thank you to the father, but he knew he loved paintings. And the soldier was not a painter. He had tried his hand at painting a picture of the beloved son. And the father took the wrapping off the portrait and wept as he saw his son. It was not a good painting, but it had a good resemblance. And the soldier had captured the personality and the essence of the son in the painting. The father thanked the man for, paint, for the painting and offered to pay. And the soldier replied, oh, no, sir, I, I could never repay what your son has done for me. This is a gift. The father placed the portrait upon the mantle and looked at it every day. As the man became older, dealers in the area began to make plans for the day that he would auction off all his paintings. And soon came the day that the man died. And then the date was set to auction off his estate. The auctioneer began by holding up the painting of the man's son. And we will start the building, the bidding, excuse me, with the picture of his son. Who will bid for this picture? But there was silence. The buyers complained, forget about that amateur portrait. Let's just get to the good stuff. We're here for the famous paintings. The auctioneer said that it was in the will of the father that this painting should go first. He insisted. So what am I bid for this painting of the sun? $100, $200? No one offered a bid. We want the treasures, they complained. Give us the treasures. We want to bid on the true works of art. Give us Van Gogh and Rembrandt. Get on with the real bids. An old man in the back of the room had been the gardener of the father and the son. And so he raised his hand and bid $10. Is there another bid, asked the auctioneer. 
hearing no one. He said, going once, going twice, sold for $10. He banged the gavel and announced that the auction was over. All the art dealers began to protest loudly, saying, how can you say the auction is over when we haven't had a chance to bid on the good paintings? Let's start the bidding on the treasures, the real good stuff. The auctioneer announced with a smile, it was in the will of the Father that he who gets the Son gets it all. I hope that's where we are. I hope we understand that. I hope we don't have to go through the lessons that Nebuchadnezzar had to go through and that Belshazzar had to go through. Hopefully we get it. No person, no man, no woman in their pride can get to heaven, can have their sins forgiven, can have a relationship with God apart from Jesus Christ. And hopefully in that context, this makes sense. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. Amen. Lord, we love you. We bless you this morning. Thank you for speaking to us. Thank you for ministering. Lord, may we walk away here today with something that you've given to us that will help us understand, Lord, just to lay lay it all down. Maybe we know you and we praise you for that and, and we're so grateful for that. But Lord, we want to go further. We want to go deeper. May you impress your heart, your will upon us. May we follow you. May we abide in Christ. For those, Lord, this morning who have never surrendered their hearts to you, who have never invited you in, who've never been born again, may this become for them that moment where they just reach out to you and they say, Lord, please save me. Be merciful to me, a sinner. And Lord, as you promised, would you come into their lives right now and bring love and hope and peace and joy and forgiveness and all of those things that we so desperately need that can only come from you. And Lord, bring those people in, baptize them into your kingdom right now. And we thank you for that and we praise you in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. All right, shall we stand and sing a song of praise to the Lord before we are